Welcome to the 2024 season of As Spiders Do, the University of Richmond podcast where we share stories about our amazing alumni. I'm your host, Maggie Johnson, from the class of 2018. Today, I'm speaking with Latonia Coakley, class of 2006, and owner of a Jorn Tea House. Latonia is a self-described wellness creative, and today we're talking all about grief, dreams, and the beauty of play. so much for joining me today, Latonia. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Maggie. Thanks for Uh, having me. Of course. So I'd love to just start by hearing a little bit about how you ended up at University of Richmond. Oh, good question. I didn't (laughs) expect it to begin that way. So I'm actually a Richmond native. I grew up on the South Side. I graduated from Huguenot High School. When I was in high school, I was in an amazing program called Partnership for the Future, um, which exposed Richmond City public school students to Fortune 500 companies and also institutions in our state and elsewhere to help us sort of propel us towards the future and towards goals that we have for ourselves. And so one of the schools we visited was University of Richmond. At the time, Kimberly Dean, who I think works at the University of Richmond now, she was in her early 20s and one of our mentors and directors of the program and one of our biggest advocates who was also a spider. So we took a tour. I did the Minority Overnight Visitation Experience, which really transformed my opinion. You know, being a Richmonder, that University of Richmond was never in my view for the future. I, I was thinking about going to Atlanta or Washington, D.C., but after the tour and the overnight experience and meeting Dr. Cade, I knew that it was the place for me and so decided to come. Oh, I love that. What yeah. was it about University of Richmond? I know you mentioned a few people or the experience, but like, was there any one yeah. thing that you were like sold you on University of Richmond that like really made you feel like you belonged here? Definitely the institution support. I was a Cigna scholar and also a Bonner scholar, so I had financial support, but also just knowing that there was a community of people that were looking out for people like me from the city of Richmond in particular to support us in our growth and development at the university was really, really important to me. The other piece was when I was a senior in high school, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so it was important for me to be as close to home as possible. Mm -hmm. Being 15 minutes just across the bridge made a big difference too. But the atmosphere, it was a beautiful campus. The energy felt good. I knew some folks that were going there. I know Kim Dean loved the institution. I knew it would be a good fit for me. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing about your dad. I I can't imagine having to start college with that and kind of dealing with that as well. Did that influence kind of your experience at college at all? Absolutely. Definitely. So my junior year, my father, actually the first or second week of school, my father passed away. Mm -hmm. Dean Fair escorted my mother to come and get me in class. I I think it was in the education class. I'll never forget that morning. I'm still to this day overwhelmed by the support of the institution, knowing that my mother didn't have to deliver the news alone and that upon my return, I was loved on and supported and listened to by many other folks at the institution, in particular, the community of students. I don't know if I would have made it. And having that experience definitely propelled me to do what I do today, too. Yeah, it's always the thing that sticks out to me about UR is just like the community here and and the people are just everyone always is kind of coming around you and supporting you. Absolutely, Um, I know, again, like you've mentioned so many great people already, but is there one experience or one person at UR who like really, really inspires you? Oh, Oh my goodness. Top of mind would definitely be Dr. Tina Cade. She was, she ran the Sigma Scholar program at the time. At the, I think she also was the director of multicultural and student affairs. 
she just showed us so much love and how to care for ourselves, especially in a moment where I'm literally, my life is changing. It's upside down. I, I didn't know how I was supposed to respond, whether or not I was supposed to stay in school. And just knowing that, you know, being able to have realistic conversations with her too, because yes, I'm the first in my friend group to lose a parent or both my parents, which we'll talk about later, but this is something that we'll all experience, right? And it doesn't feel good. And I always respected and loved the fact that Dr. Kate was so honest and transparent with us. She didn't sugarcoat. She kept it real. <laughs> and I needed that. I needed that support. I needed someone to be like, no, this is, this is happening. This is real. Here's how we can support you. And that also has influenced just how I take care of myself now, how I run my business, how I love one of the people around me. And I don't think I'm familiar with the Sickness Scholars. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, program? so the Sigma Scholar Program, I think it's called the Oliver Hill Scholar Program now. Gotcha. But at the okay. time, Sigma, yeah. they offered three-quarter scholarships, maybe a full ride to African-American students for a while. And so that support was just like a really incubate, a really beautiful incubator of love and financial support. But also we did city tours. We did all types yeah. of workshops and different ways to support us throughout our journey at UR. At the time, there were very few people of color at the school. I want to say I graduated in 2006 and maybe 130 people of color, Black people. And mm -hmm. so, as you can imagine, that made our time at the institution very, it can make it challenging at times and mm -hmm. felt very isolating. I can remember classes where I was the only person of color, not just the only Black person, but the only mm -hmm. person of color. So having the Sigma Scholar Program support me in those moments was really pivotal for my growth. Um, and also helped me in my, my careers thereafter. And then the Barnard Scholar Program was just dope. We did lots of community support, community service. I can remember us taking a trip to West Virginia at one point, which was cool. wild because I'm not really a nature girl. <laughs> but we had so much fun connecting with the community there. And we just did all sorts of beautiful work. Following my father's passing, I chose the Ronald McDonald House as my community service. That's really served as healing for me as I was processing the unimaginable with little kids and families that were also processing something that was really challenging. Growing up as a, as a Richmonder, did attending University of Richmond change your relationship with the city at all? Or what was that like for you? The way you experience the city of Richmond as a Black person is very different than from a person that is not Black. And so my experience in Richmond I actually didn't really know about the University of Richmond until I was a, in high school. It was just a totally foreign existence to me. Knew lots about uh, VCU. We used to go to VCU <laughs> basketball games all the time. Of course, Virginia Union, Virginia State. But it reminded me of the bubbles that exist in any community. This is not just a Richmond thing. It's a, I live in the D.C. area now. This is the same thing here. So you have these beautiful, interesting, even somewhat segregated bubbles of people that are systemic and sometimes we do it to ourselves, right? I think for me, it broadened my perspective on the city. It allowed me to see a different part of the city, but it also allowed me to, and challenged me to double down on my support of my family and people like me in the city. And that made a difference in the community support that I did. It made a difference in degree and career path that I chose and then also contribute to the work that I do today. You've mentioned a little bit about your post-Richmond career and what you do today, kind of what's been that journey yeah. for you. So I graduated in 2006. I immediately started a master's program at the University of Maryland. I literally graduated <laughs> May 9th, which was my mother's birthday. And then I moved a week or two later to Maryland, started a expedited master's program in education. I was a classroom teacher and school leader 
for 10 years. I really enjoyed teaching, but in 2014, my mother passed away from cancer as well. It was at that moment where I had just turned 30 and I'm really trying to consider the way that I want my life to be. I think the tragedy of loss can be stifling and it also can be energizing. It was very clear to me in those moments, losing my parents as young as my sister and I did that. Life isn't forever. Though morbid, it's the truth, right? Yeah. And so I have control over what I want to do. And I also think my time at University of Richmond reminded me of that. It's a liberal arts school. I was almost an art major, just didn't want to take art history. <laughs> and so I really started to think about, okay, so if my parents were young, my dad was 45 when he passed, my mom was 50. If, God forbid, my life takes that path, yeah. am I doing what I want to do? I felt like I wasn't. And so I left the classroom. I worked for an improvisational theater-based teacher training organization in Washington, D.C. called uh, Center for Inspired Teaching. It was so dope. So we are trained in improv, and we use improv techniques to teach teachers how to engage with students in the classroom. One of the best jobs I've ever had. I did that for a couple of years, loved it. Funding sources changed. Nonprofits, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it can be up and down sometimes. And so I transitioned from that to doing some consulting. Now, this is right before the pandemic in 2019 oh that this sort of situation happened. So I did some consulting for a while. But of course, the entire world uh, shut down. Yep. And, and so the schools we were supporting, the work we were doing also had to stop for a bit. In that time, I was working with teacher certification program with the Center for Inspired Teaching. And I did a workshop with teachers on how to bring yourself into the classroom. I had already been playing with tea. Even as a teacher, I used tea as a tool to reconnect to myself, especially after my mother passed. If I was having a particularly rough day, I had a little office. I would go make a cup of tea. And it became something that my students recognized. So they would say, Miss Smith, you have your cup of tea today? Or, you know, she didn't make her tea. Give her a second. And it occurred to me in that instance that I was modeling a very sustainable self-care practice. Drinking a cup of tea, giving yourself five minutes to rest is very sustainable. I allowed my students to bring in teas and different things to help them take care of themselves. It was just a really good modeling for me. And so fast forward, coaching these teachers on how to bring themselves into the classroom, I bought in my teas. And coincidentally, one of our, our teachers Her sister was general manager of a store in Georgetown and said, if you make these teas and package them, I will sell them for you. And so that was the catalyst for me in 2019 to really get it started. My husband had already purchased the LLC for me as a Christmas gift. I never intended to, you know, be where I was and to leave education as a whole. But the way that life works, you kind of go with the flow. Yeah. I've been doing this full time since then. How did you land on tea as your self-care moment? Is that something you grew up with? What led you there? (laughs) Yeah, we drank tea growing up. It wasn't specific. So, you know, I I grew up in Richmond. I grew up in the South. We always had sun tea, iced tea. (laughs) My mom used to heat up apple juice. We called that tea as well. But I always loved drinking warm drinks. I thought it was really cool and just sort of classy and, you know, just an elevated experience. As I grew up, I drank a lot of tea in college too, but as I became a young adult, that became something that I would do when I came home or before bed. It didn't become a serious practice until my mother passed. More than just sipping a cup here or there, it became something that I'm, I'm now looking at herbs that can help calm my nervous system. I'm looking at herbs to help me sleep 
or Mm -hmm. balance the anxiety and the trauma of such a profound loss, how can I sit on my stomach when I'm having a really tough grieving day? And that that was just how I started playing with teas. I really opened a tea bag one day and I was like, this is crap. What is this? I don't even know what this is. And so I'm like, I can do this. It's just putting a bunch of herbs together. And so part of my entry into that was also to just play. I think as we grow, we become adults, we encourage ourselves out of that, or you play in very specific ways on a team sport, or, you know, you have a very specific running routine, Um, but play can just be so many different ways of exploring. It could be making a favorite recipe, painting a picture, cutting the grass in a very specific way, but this was my way of play and how I nourished my soul. I love this idea of just playing and I'd love to hear a little bit more. Do you do research when you're doing a new tea or do you just kind of really play with it and see how you feel, how, how it turns out? What's your, what's your creative process? That's just it. It's just playing. So a lot of my blends come from my own experiences growing up in Richmond. So for example, I have one tea called Rimshot and when we were at the University of Richmond, there used to be this little jazz spot called Tropical Soul that a bunch of us at the university, I would say like 10 to 15 of us, every week we would go. It was a little jazz cafe that had this band that was really dope. Poets were calm, singers were calm. And we would drink our little coffees, eat our little Caribbean food. But it just had this sultry, smoky, chocolatey, succulent vibe. And so... I created a tea called Rimshot, sort of based on that, which is toasted cacao shell directly from a maker in Northern Virginia, toasted coconut, some chicory, and cinnamon. So still giving that lush, succulent, sultry essence, but within the tea. Also, just sort of the history of Richmond. I have a blend called Kinfolk, which is an ode to John Dabney, who was one of America's first Black caterers. And um, he created a drink very similar to the mint julep. And he used his creation and his catering and cooking skills to actually purchase his own freedom. And so when I talk about my growing up in Richmond, it was very different. It was very saturated in the experiences of Black people and the plight of Black people and my family. And so these sort of stories peek in and out of my creative process too. But when I come up with a new blend, I'm normally just playing. I, oh, I have some pomegranate. Let me see if this goes well with mint. All right, I like pomegranate and mint. I'm going to brew a little bit and taste it. And if it's good, I keep going. If it's not, we start over. And really part of my goal moving forward with Adjourne is to have this as a modeling process for adults in 35 to 55, where we really feel stifled and stuck in these careers and these experiences that we've been doing for many years. And I think that leads to a lot of unhappiness. But if there's more play and more exploration, our experiences feel better. I love that you kind of hit on this middle age, I think it's a 35 to 50 time frame, where like maybe we're going through a lot of shifts in our personal life or not. And we were kind of looking for something different. Is that something you personal experience with? Or or where would you like to see that kind of grow with your business? I was 29 when my mom passed away. And um, she was diagnosed and and passed on within a year. So it was very quick. Um, my sister had just started her doctoral program at Syracuse. So it was just me sort of running back and forth to Richmond. It was just very unexpected. But the beauty of that process was watching her transition and sort of look at her life holistically. And one of the things I walked away with was I wanted my life to represent what felt good to me. I want to look back and be like, damn, I wanted to start a tea company. I did it. Whether it was successful or not, I wanted that to be experienced. Or I want to travel the world. How can I do this? Because I want this to be a part of my conversation with myself when we all get to that point. 
we're all want to look back and be like, did I do the things I wanted to do? Did I experience the things I want to experience? And so that was a big catalyst for me. As I approach 40, part of what keeps me here is that same thing of enjoying the process. This is not easy. This is definitely harder than teaching middle school. You know, <laughs> I used to think teaching was really hard. This is very hard. But I have so much joy and pride in what I'm creating. And though it is very scary, I'm making a lot of mistakes. I know that's keeping me interested in living and growing and exposing myself to new things. I'm watching a lot of my friends and careers that they've had for the last 15 to 20 years. And it's not that they're sad. It's just that sort of zest isn't the same as it used to be. And I, I aim to keep that zest. I love that keeping the zest. I feel like we need that yeah. on like an inspirational pillow or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's possible to keep your nine to five and still find that zest. You know, yeah. I think as humans, we have to be okay with coming in and out of it. But I think we it should always be something we're moving towards. That's so cool. Thank yeah, I always, I always talk to people about like filling their cups. You know, you might not, yeah. work might not fill your cup all the way, but as long as you have something else that is, you yeah. find that balance in your life. Yeah, yeah. I've been obsessed with the conversation around like a midlife crisis. Not that I am in that space or any of my <laughs> friends are, but I believe that people hit that spot because you're tired, you're stressed, mm -hmm. you've been stressed, or you've been focused on one thing for 15 years and you're like, yeah. Where's the zest? And so you go out and do these wild things when all along you could have been infusing this throughout your life. Absolutely. So you mentioned your husband bought the LLC for a Christmas present. I love that. Yeah. How did you come up with Adjourn Tea House? Was there, was there an inspiration behind that name? Yeah. So Adjourn literally means we're going to stop something. For a moment of time, it could be a temporary, this meeting is adjourned. It could mean that we're coming back to it tomorrow, or it could be to stop it in general. And so part of my brand philosophy is that throughout our days, we can infuse micro moments of self-care. They don't have to be, I'm going to book a two-hour massage ses session to take care of myself. It doesn't have to be a nail appointment or you know, even meditating, sitting crisscross for two hours, it's not comfortable for everyone. And really part of my work is about accessibility. I'm a first generation college student. And my parents didn't have the luxury to pay for that, to go and meditate for an hour. They had kids to raise, they had work mm -hmm. to do. And so what does that look like for a person like me? And that could be spending five minutes with a quality cup of tea. That is a sustainable self-care practice. And so adjourn literally the definition I use to pause intentionally to sit down with a cup of tea to breathe, to really engage in the art of adjourning or pausing, which would be to pay attention to the, the warmth in your hand, to the flavors and the intricacies and the dynamic nature of the tea, to feel the warmth at the back of your throat, to close your eyes and just really allow yourself to rest. That is a more sustainable approach to self-care. I love that you also, your title, on, I was looking at your LinkedIn, is wellness yeah. creative, CEO and wellness creative. I love that framing of your position. So when someone Thank asks you. you, what do you do for work? How do you explain what you do? I say pieces of that, and it's taken me a while to own that, right? As a creative wellness practitioner, I view wellness as multi-layered. This is just one piece of it, right? But I think creativity, play, and small micro moment, moments make a bigger difference than forcing you into these big bursts of self-care. I also think it releases me from the stagnant nature of the wellness space in general. I think when we think about wellness practitioners, we tend to think about thin, often white folk who are holding space, owning studios, and walking people through different ways of taking care of themselves, 
me as a plus size bald black woman, it makes a difference to the customer and the consumer to see me in the space, but also to know that I'm challenging the perspective of wellness in our country. Just because you look a certain way doesn't mean that you are well. And just because you come from a different background doesn't mean that you cannot be well. And so I think it's important to see that. And also I release myself from the idea that I have to be an herbalist. And I tell people that all the time, I don't create blends because of your fibromyalgia. I might create products that help you with that, but I do not diagnose or treat those things. What I do is create for you to find moments of pause, for you to adjourn, for you to pause intentionally, for you to bring back breath and ease into your life through the practice and tool of tea drinking. One of my favorite studies is kind of this idea of like framing our positions and framing our roles. The more you do that, the more ownership of you feel and allows you to get into that creative space. So I think that's so cool that you've you found that space for yourself. It took me forever to figure out what I was in this mm-hmm. space. So thank you. I received that. And that definitely serves as affirmation for me that ideologically, I'm on the right path. Absolutely. You mentioned thank a little you. bit earlier about finding joy in the process, even when, it, when it's hard. What are some challenges you're facing either in life Ooh. or your your work right now? But like, what's something you're, you're tackling right now? Ooh. Well, one is the recession. I am not an economist. I I also am, I'm an educator. I'm not a businesswoman. And so that learning curve is deep. I'm, this past, the past two years have been really tough for a lot of small businesses. For me, it's giving myself grace, knowing that as a person that is a perfectionist and always challenging perfectionism that I have and will continue to make mistakes as I grow the business and how to recover from those spiritually and otherwise. That has been a big challenge for me. I think funding options can be really tough. I didn't realize how much money you need to have in order to start and sustain a business. So that's been that's been a challenge, figuring out ways to get customers to come back and buy a product. Again, I think my skills as a teacher were helpful. Teaching is an art and mm-hmm. being able to sell fractions to a third grader is a skill. <laughs> and so I've been able to use some of my skill as a teacher, but... The business part of it is tough and just kind of the ins and outs and again, just giving giving myself the grace to exist and make mistakes and as a person who is not comfortable with that, that has been a big learning for me. And also hope and faith, those are practices as well. So we all we always tell people, have faith, be positive. That's a practice. Mm-hmm. It is not easy all the time to have faith, but I learning to accept the challenges. I'm learning to make the mistakes and just kind of be like, okay, all right, what's next? This happened. Let's how, how do I move on? Who can I call to get some help to reach out? You know, I, I think when you have a, a business and you're the only person working on the business. So I've had employees and contractors here, there throughout the life of the business. But right now, because things are um, changing economically, it is primarily me and my husband. And so allowing myself um the space to ask for help and to accept the help that comes. And yeah, I think it's a lot about grace for me right now. I love that. Yeah, I think, you know, Thank we're you, in a space you. where so much is changing for all of us and yeah, having faith and grace and hope. Are, I think these are big picture items, but affect us every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for you, what what is that practice of finding faith and hope? So I think one of the things I feel like we teach out of our students in the American education system is the art of dreaming. 
we are, at least in my generation, I find with the younger generation, I'm, and I'm assuming that you're included in, in this younger generation, y'all are challenging the system and the status quo of how you're supposed to exist, right? But my generation was go to college, get a degree, get a good job, keep that job, have retirement. And then after you retire, then you get to do all the things, right? That for me didn't work. My parents didn't even reach retirement. They did not mm-hmm. get to experience that. I can remember my mom in hospice at St. Francis and her being, dang, I, you know, I didn't even get to, I wanted to go to this restaurant. I always wanted to travel here. And, and just the realization that that may not happen. That, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't have to be your story, right? God mm-hmm. forbid, but that may not happen. And so if that is in fact a possibility, I have to be the dreamer. That has to be a practice of mine. In order for me to keep my faith in myself and my business and the life that I'm building, I have to be able to sit down and find moments to dream and visualize what that could be like. That has been a big part of my practice as well. It is scary. And I'm not going to even lie. I have a, a crew of dreamers with me <laughs> in this journey where we talk regularly about the dreams that we have. Awesome. Um, we're meeting and we're talking about it. We're creating things. Some of us have created and launched ideas. Some of us are still in the creative process, but even that part of it makes a big difference in the faith that you have for your life and for your future. And I think also losing my parents so young, that was really what propelled me to start this. I'd always actually wanted to have like a tea and candle shop. Actually, when I was um, in high school, I won a citywide competition for, actually, fate. It was the Virginia State competition for a business plan. And my business plan was to have a a tea and candle shop. But this is play. This is play, right? (laughs) Fast forward. I completely forgot it. And my sister was like, you know you won that competition back in early 2000s. I'm like, that is so cool. (laughs) We don't know those little pieces, those little dreams and ideas, those seeds that are planted. You never know when they're going to sprout, right? And I'm seeing this sprout 20 years later. Really had no intention of doing this. But certainly having faith that my life and my existence is worth the time and effort. It's worth the dream. It's worth the ideas that I'm not delusional to think that I could live a better, more sustainable life, have a career where I'm not super stressed out. I love teaching. I still teach in my career now, but I was exhausted. My mother was in hospice and I remember my sub didn't show up to my class. And I got a text message from someone at my school. It's like, hey, your sub didn't show up. And it was at that moment it occurred to me that we have allowed our in our country to be commodities. We are not Mm -hmm. looking at each other as human. And here I am holding my mother's hand. She is Mm -hmm. days away from death, looking at a text message about a substitute. In that moment, I was like, this doesn't matter. I get to choose what is important to me. I love that. I love that idea of choosing. Like we all have choice and we get to build whatever we want. And I also love your story of like, you were in a situation that like maybe you loved, but you had this realization but like you weren't afraid to like take a different direction and go someplace else. I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. And to what add if, to that, yeah. like Maggie, I I was afraid. I'm yeah. still afraid. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I am yeah. just, I'm learning as I go. I think we have to do more things afraid. Like we have to step out there. It is scary. All of this is scary. And also it could be really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I think, you know, you truly embody that like stepping outside of your comfort zone and that like you you can't succeed or you can't really achieve your dreams if you're only going to do what you're comfortable with. So I I really love that. What are you dreaming of right now? Oh, my God. 
I want to see my my business flourish. I never started with this idea of having this multi-million dollar company, right? I want to live a sustainable life. The first two years, we moved, we grew so fast. Had no idea that I could potentially make the type of money that we were making selling tea, right? The past two years have been a, a little more challenging with the recession, us returning to work, our practices changing, how we spend our money, our habits, all of that is changing. And so I think my dream right now is just to sustain and to see what I have built flourish. I also, I dream of seeing this support other families. And so right now I'm not in a position to hire full-time staff. I have contractors here and there for projects. You know, I have folks that I could call on, but I would love to, you know, in the, in the next few years, hire someone and be able to sustain multiple families on the type of work that we do. And I think my biggest dream is, so part of my work has been branching out and doing workshops on that include tea tastings and meditation and play. And so walking people through my creative process of making a tea. And so I would love to see that grow. That's definitely given me all of my teacher feels, yeah. <laughs> but in a very sustainable way. So I call this event the Flow Pour. I'm actually, I think we're planning to do one with the University of Richmond in the upcoming year. And so yeah. just trying to like branch out and expose people to my sort of avenue in the way of self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, I started with seeing the business flourishes because things have been tough for a lot of small businesses. And so I'm blessed to still be here. But next year, I want to say <laughs> we're still here and we're doing really, really well. So I look forward to that. That's the dream I have. I love that. You talked a little Thank bit you. about I love that you you talk about sustaining families and creating community. What What does community look like for you right now? Community looks like love. It looks like a haven of people who are interested in my life and what I'm doing, who are interested in caring for me, but also in that within that that community, I'm able to care for them. My love practice is giving back. For me, community looks like that support, that spiritual support, that emotional support, financial support, energetic support. I've been really honing down on the type of energy that I spend and who I give it to. Starting this career has taught me that. So I went from a career where there's thousands of different energies around me every day yeah. that I have to like balance and negotiate. <laughs> and now I'm mostly by myself and mm-hmm. I found that I'm a lot more sensitive than I really ever imagined. And so being very specific about the folks that are around me makes a difference. And I think, especially when, you, when you're in college, you're sort of building community kind of off the cuff. You're at school. Mm-hmm. That's your common denominator, I guess. As you become an adult, you have to be very intentional about that. Mm-hmm. And so you have to take your time. Everybody can't be in your community. You also are going to attract people and you're going, people are going to melt away and you're going to have to say no and you're going to want to say yes. And so really allowing myself the time to build a community that looks like what I need now. I was in different organizations at the University of Richmond. I was, I'm also in a sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. A lot of my community includes the women from my chapter in my time at the University of Richmond, but also being comfortable with how that has changed. Mm-hmm. I am not the same person I was then. Losing my parents, that experience has changed me. And so that means that my friendships have to change as well. My mm-hmm. community is going to change as well. Absolutely. I think that's, that's something, you know, we always see, like, I think even at my age, I'm 27, just like starting to change yeah. and I've moved around some and how yeah. that changes. And, you know, we just had in my five year reunion and kind of seeing everyone come back. I was like, oh my gosh, like here are all these people yeah. that 
you know, they knew me five years ago and I'm certainly not the same person and they aren't either. Yeah. And so we're all trying to kind of relearn that. And I think that's really yeah. cool how you, yeah. you put intention around that. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I think it's either June Jordan or Audre Lord. I can't remember which one, but they said, I'm different people at different times. Mm. And that's okay. And I think we need to remember that. I think that's really beautiful. My last question for you, and I ask this of everyone, is sure. what does it mean to be a Richmond spider? Whew. For me, it means to explore. I took classes that I would have never taken. I explored so many different things. I didn't have the opportunity to study abroad because my father was so ill and I wanted to be at home, but I could have. And so for me, being a Richmond spider is exploration. It's putting yourself into in, in different situations, seeing how you like them. If you don't like them, saying no. I love the idea of liberal arts just in general. I remember being a freshman, I couldn't fathom how, you know, my friends at different institutions had to declare a major right away. And I'm here I am like, well, I'm taking some art classes and I'm taking the black vernacular and I'm learning this in this class and I want to take that with me. But also the idea that our lives and our existences can be beautiful from the beautiful campus to the experiences that we had to the relationships that I was able to make and nurture past almost 20 years since graduation. That for me, that's what it means to be a spider. Thanks for listening to As Spiders Do from the University of Richmond Office of Alumni Engagement. We hope you enjoyed hearing from our alumni and learned a little bit more about what it means to be a Richmond spider. This episode was edited and produced by Charlotte Fematter, Assistant Director for Student and Young Graduate Engagement. Our episode music is by FAS Sounds from Pixabay. You can subscribe to As Spiders Do wherever you get your podcasts. Rate our show and leave us a review to let us know what you think. We're always looking for new stories to share, so let us know who else we should feature by emailing us at alumni at richmond.edu. That's all for this episode. Talk to you soon, and remember, there are spiders everywhere, and that's a really good thing.